Good one. Call nothing but the blood. official, so I'll make it a pronouncement, I have decided by caveat and uh, pastoral decree that my birthday continues until the chair gets here. 
So anybody late who just feels like, wow, I missed out on the birthday. No, you didn't. There's still time to bring me chocolate. <laughs> so just wanted to get that out there. We are continuing in the book of Matthew, and we are at the very, very end of chapter 16. And last week, I stopped one verse short of finishing chapter 16 because I said that it would take us too long to deal with verse 28. And so we're going to start right at verse 28 this morning. Verse 28 is a somewhat controversial verse. I don't understand the controversy. I mean, I'll explain it to you. But to me, textually, it's not difficult to understand. Now, big picture stuff. Throughout the book of Matthew, time and time again, we've seen Jesus exercising authority. We've seen Jesus demonstrate that he has authority over things like the Sabbath. He's already demonstrated that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He has already demonstrated that he is superior over the law of Moses. On the Sermon on the Mount, repeatedly he said things like, you have heard it said, and then he would quote right from the law of Moses. And then he would say, but I say. He was demonstrating his authority over the law of Moses. And we're going to see that again today. We're going to see Jesus yet again exercise this kind of absolute authority. And there is a pattern to the book of Matthew that I hope you're recognizing and beginning to see now, where every time Jesus makes some declaration or exercises some demonstration of his authority, it is always followed up by demonic activity. It's almost like a battle royale going on, that every time Jesus on the planet demonstrates his authority, like at his baptism, when a voice comes from heaven, when the Spirit of God comes down like a dove and the voice says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, the very next thing that happens is that he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to fast for 40 days and then go through temptations from Satan. I mentioned Jesus saying that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Right behind that, demoniac. We're going to say the same thing again this morning. We're going to see what's commonly called the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, the Mount of Transfiguration is in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're going to look at each of them this morning because they all add a little bit of detail. But all three of them also include immediately behind that yet another demoniac appearance. Yet another time when Jesus' authority and power is challenged by Satan. I think this is part of why it's so important to remember Jesus' own statement concerning himself, that he would build his ecclesia, his church, and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Throughout his ministry, there is always this pushback. There is always this demonic activity that culminates ultimately in Judas himself being demonically inspired to go and turn Jesus over to the Jews and to the Romans. And so we're going to see that again here, that same pattern, the transfiguration, Jesus demonstrating himself in his glory, followed right away by yet another increasingly dangerous demonic activity. We may not get to all of that this morning. We'll at least get through the transfiguration. Now, let's take a look at Matthew 16, 28. Truly I say to you, Matthew's rendering, there are some of you who are standing here who shall not taste death 
until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, just a surface reading of that verse could lead you to believe that what Jesus said was, some of you who are standing here with me right now will not die until you see the culmination of the kingdom. And certainly that is the way that some people read it. Are you familiar with a theological approach known as preterism? Have you heard of preterism? Well, the preterists believe that there is nothing left in the Bible, Old or New Testament, to be accomplished prophetically. In fact, full preterists believe that in 70 AD, Jesus actually did return. So even the return of Christ has already been accomplished. Jesus returned in judgment in 70 AD in the downfall of Jerusalem, and so as far as they're concerned, there is nothing left prophetically still to be done. There are some rather well-known preterists to this day that are wielding a fair amount of influence. If you've ever been flipping across the radio dial and come across a guy named Hank Hanegraaff, who calls himself the Bible Answer Man, Hank is a full preterist. And this is one of those places where We see demonstrated, obviously, that your eschatology cannot help but affect your entire theology. If you believe that everything promised or predicted or prophesied in the Bible has already been accomplished, that can't help but affect the whole rest of your theological outlook. For instance, we endure the things that we endure. We go through the things that we go through in this life because we are anticipating what Paul calls our blessed hope. We're looking forward with anticipation to Christ cracking the sky and coming back to get his church. And that gives us a certain amount of confidence as we go through this world and as the world gets continually crazier and weirder and more anti-Christian as increasing amounts of anti-Christian behavior is going on, we take comfort in the fact that Jesus is coming to get us. Well, if I take that hope away from you, then you're going to look at what's happening in the world and just say, wow, it's just getting violent and Christians are being slaughtered wholesale in the Middle East and, and there's nothing to look forward to. There's no blessed hope. There's no anticipation that Christ is coming back to get his church. So here's a good demonstration of how your eschatology affects your entire theology. Your entire Christian life and outlook is affected if you think that everything is finished. Among Reformed folk, R.C. Sproul is very popular. I like R.C. I've liked some of his books very much, but R.C. is a partial preterist. He believes that everything in the Bible has been accomplished, except that Christ is still coming back. That's the difference between partial preterism and full preterism. I don't agree with either one of those views. I believe there is a great deal yet to be done. There is a great amount of prophecy in the Bible yet to be accomplished. And so I am anticipating not only Christ returning, but a time of trouble on earth such as never was or ever will be again. I do expect a very literal thousand years here on planet Earth where Christ will establish his earth, rule from David's throne over the regathered 12 tribes of Israel, and all the Gentile nations will flow to Jerusalem. Those are all biblical promises that haven't been fulfilled anywhere in history, and so I can't help but conclude that these are still future things that must happen. See the difference? Okay, so... 
If you look at verse 28 and you read it as Jesus stating categorically that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, then you have to ask, well, then in what way did any of the apostles actually see this happen? Now, some people will say, well, he's talking about John, that John lived longer than any of the rest of the apostles, and that he lived long enough to actually see the revelation, and that in seeing the revelation, he saw Jesus predicting the full outcome and future of his kingdom, but that wouldn't be some of you, that would be one of you. There are some people who say, well, it was the establishment of Christ's kingdom at Pentecost, that when Pentecost happened, that's the beginning of the kingdom in a spiritual way, but that wouldn't be some of you, that would be all of you. So in what way can we say that some of them that were standing there at that moment were going to see Christ in his kingdom? Now, the word kingdom, basileia in the Greek, is the standard word for kingdom, but it's translated different ways depending on your translation. Young's literal translation actually translates it as some of you will see the Son of Man in his reign. And that's a perfectly acceptable translation as well. In Luke 9.27, somebody turn there. In Luke 9.27, it's kind of a simplified version of the statement. Rather than saying you'll see the Son of Man in his kingdom, it's just you're going to see the kingdom. You're going to see the rain. Somebody got Luke 9.27? You want to read it nice and loud for us? But I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not take of death, Till they see the kingdom of God. So there it's till you see the kingdom of God, but not the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Simply the kingdom itself. So, so then how are we to understand this? What are we going to do about this? Because it can be, like I said, a fairly confusing verse. I think the answer is in the context. The very next thing that you see in Matthew is a big 17. And you have to remember that that 17 was added by translators about 500 years ago, and that it's not in the original text. Any of the, anybody reading the original text before the numbers were put in there would have seen a flow right from that statement to the Mount of Transfiguration. And this is where it really gets interesting. You know that Matthew and Mark and Luke, though they all three cite many of the same events, They don't always do it in the same order. Luke, in particular, writing to Theophilus, says that the purpose for his gospel is to set these things in order, give us some sense of the timeline of the things that Jesus did with his apostles. Whereas Matthew kind of pulls pieces from here and there, and they're not necessarily always in chronological order. But at this moment, all three gospels fall into perfect sync with each other. All three mentioned the quote, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until you see either the kingdom or the son of man in his kingdom. And then all three go directly to the Mount of Transfiguration. And so I think they're doing that on purpose. I think the satisfaction of that promise is found in the Mount of Transfiguration, where not all and not one, but some of them, specifically Peter, John, and James, see Jesus in his glory.
They see him not as Isaiah's suffering servant, not as the Lamb of God coming to be crucified, not the teaching rabbi walking this dusty planet, but they see him as the risen, glorified, powerful Christ. They see him the way that John sees him at the beginning of the book of Revelation, glorified. I think the fact that all three synoptics tell the story in exactly that order, only Matthew separates it into chapters, which I think is a huge mistake. If it were up to me, I would have moved that 17 about a verse earlier. And chapter 16, 28 would have been the beginning of chapter 17. But more importantly, just erase all those numbers. When you're reading the Bible, get rid of the numbers because the numbers give you the impression that you're looking at an entire thought when you read a verse. And you're not. You have to look at the larger context and look at the flow of the narrative. And the flow of Matthew's narrative goes from the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he will recompense every man according to his deeds. And truly I say to you, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man in his reign. Next words, and six days later. There's this big and right there. There's this big chi. It's even in the Greek. That is a connector. That's a joinder. And six days later, this is what happened. And they all do that. They all make the connection. We just read from Luke, but everybody go to Luke 9 for just a second. Luke 9, verse 27. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And some eight days after these sayings, it came about that he took along Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. Go to Mark 9. Mark chapter 9. Right at verse 1. Here, for some reason, the translators got smart and started the chapter right at Jesus' statement, which is what should have happened in the book of Matthew. By the way, I will mention that the chapter divisions are not divinely inspired. It's okay to disagree with chapter markings. Chapter 9, verse 1. And he was saying to them, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Okay, here's a little bit different twist on it. Now it's not the son of man coming in his kingdom, and now it's not like Luke, just the kingdom. Now it's just they're going to see the kingdom of God and its power. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his garments became radiant and exceeding white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. You see the transition in all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke? They go from that statement, which actually has a context, 
directly to the demonstration of God's power in the transfiguration of Christ. And therefore, I think contextually, all three writers were trying to tell us that that is the satisfaction of that promise. Yes, sir? How come uh, Matthew and Mark say six days, but Luke says eight? You'll notice that there's a modifier in Luke. The other two say six. He says about eight. Luke, I think, is just simply giving some leeway. He's saying it's within a week. I see. So let's talk about the transfiguration. We're in Matthew 17. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother. Peter, John, and James seem to be the inner circle. Peter, John, and James show up repeatedly, even though Jesus had his 12 that he chose out of all humanity. Out of that 12, Peter, John, and James seem to have a little more intimate contact with Jesus. He brought them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. Now, as we read through this, put shoe leather on it. Imagine that there's somebody you've been walking and talking with for a couple of years, like these guys have been. In fact, this may be as far as three years into his ministry, because he's on his way to Jerusalem. And he keeps saying to them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be turned over, I'm going to be crucified, or I'm going to be uh, whipped and scourged, I'm going to suffer at the hands of the Romans and the Jews, I'm going to die, but I'm going to be back again in three days. He keeps telling them this over and over again, preparing them for what's about to happen, and of course you know that when it does happen, not a one of them stays by his side, even when he's in the Mount of Olives and praying, he has to keep going back to them and saying, are you asleep again? Can't you stay awake with me for one hour and pray with me? And then, of course, when he is ultimately turned over to the Jews and then handed back and forth between the Jews and the Romans, all 11 of them scatter, run, save their own skin. But he has been telling them repeatedly what to expect and what's coming. So imagine that you've been with somebody for about three years and you've known them for about that long and you've walked with them, you've talked with them. Now, you've seen some miracles. You've seen the blind healed. You've seen the lame walking. You've seen him driving out demons. You recognize that he's really something different, something unique. You may even be, like Peter was, convinced that he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the sent one. He's the anointed. He's the one who has come for the salvation, the redemption of Israel. You may even get that much theology in your mind. But now, he breaks out in a glowing splendor Unlike anything you've ever seen, notice the different descriptions as they struggled for words. Whether it's that his face shone like the sun and his garments became white like light, or whether it's what we read out of Mark, that his clothes became whiter than any launderer could make them. Just struggling for language and words to describe what they were seeing, that he was glowing and glowing bright white. This is somebody you've been walking with and talking with. This is somebody who John is even going to lean on at the Last Supper. Talk together like they're friends, and yet this happens. Like I said, put shoe leather on it. I've known Dwight for about three years now. If Dwight suddenly started glowing bright white, 
I'd be really surprised. <laughs> I think we as a group would be shocked. But it would change how I looked at you. It would change what I think about you. This is Jesus giving them just a little foretaste of who it is they're dealing with. It's one thing that you saw me walk on the water. It's one thing that you saw that I have power and authority over demons. It's one thing that I have control over the things here on earth. It's one thing that I can talk to a fig tree and it will die. It's one thing that I can speak healing into people, but it's a whole other thing when he has the power of heaven, when he glows like God, when he demonstrates that he has There is this word. It's not a biblical word. It's a Hebrew word. It's a common Hebrew word. The word Shekinah. Have you heard that word? Shekinah means the presence of God manifested in some tangible way. Like when the smoke of God would fill the temple. Or when the pillar of fire would lead the Israelites through the night. That was known as a manifestation of God. The Shekinah of God. Well, here is Jesus demonstrating the Shekinah of God, so that their thinking about who he is increases from, you're not just a rabbi, and you're not just Messiah to come, you're not just Christ the anointed, you're the very God of very God. You are God incarnate. We can no longer think of you as just a smart man, or even a healer, or even a prophet. You know, among the Jews, they had their own exorcists. But Jesus exercised with authority that none of the rest had, as we'll see coming up. But now they're thinking about him. Now their, their concept of who he is and what he is about is increased exponentially. And what's fascinating about it is after they've come to this realization and after the theological lesson they're about to receive, Jesus says, now don't tell anybody. That'd be hard, because if it was Dwight glowing white, I'm telling people. I'm going, hey, you know what happened at church today? Stay with me. My story gets better. You're going to love this. No, you know Dwight? Turns out he's God. (laughs) Scared Joni terribly. But do you understand what I mean? They're thinking about him, their concept of him is about to increase exponentially. But now, not only is he glowing, but behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Hmm. Now, in a moment, we're going to go look at some of the other accounts of the story, and we're going to find out that what they talked about was the fact that he was going to Jerusalem to go die. That's what the discussion was about. Now, we don't know the details of the discussion. I would love to have heard that. But God has sent Moses and Elijah to come talk to Jesus about what he is about to go through. The torturous death that he's about to die. The ignominious death on the cross. But then also his resurrection to glory. And in talking to Moses and Elijah about this, he himself manifests that godlike glory, and they get to see it. It amazes me that any of the three of them were still standing. Mm. By the way, in another 
account of the story. We're going to find out that when they got there, they were actually tired. And so they went to sleep. And then the conversation ensued. It's when they woke up that they saw Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah. Remarkable. But that helps to explain what Peter says next. It's always Peter, by the way, Mr. Sandal in Mouth. It's always Peter. You get that consistent personality profile of Peter, always saying the wrong thing. But maybe if he just woke up and this is what he's seeing, maybe we can forgive him a little bit. Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. I'm glad that we made it here and that we're here with you because I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He's equating them. He's saying that I will make a dwelling, a tabernacle. There is even a feast among the Jews called the Feast of Tabernacles. This might even have been a way of equating the worship of the three of them. In any case, Peter was trying to level the playing field. It's Moses, it's Jesus, it's Elijah. They're all kind of on par with each other. Why did they use the verb answer? And he answered and said? Yes. Not an uncommon Greek verb. Usually what it means is it's a response. So he saw what was happening, and in response to what he saw, he spoke. So, while he was still saying this, while he was still speaking, says verse 5, while he was saying, I'll build three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. I'll build you each a dwelling, and we'll hang out here for a while. While he was speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Somebody look up Matthew 3.17, because we hear that statement in another place. Matthew 3.17 is after Jesus' baptism, as I mentioned a moment ago. The Spirit of God comes down in the form of a dove, And a voice from heaven speaks. So you have the triunity of God right there. Jesus in the river Jordan, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, a voice from heaven as God speaks. Father, Son, and Spirit united there at the Jordan. And the voice says, you got it there, Tom? And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That is exactly what we read here. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But now there's a phrase that you don't find at the baptism. The King James says, hear ye him. The NASB says, listen to him. Okay, so here's the big theological lesson. The whole of the Old Testament could be summarized by A common Hebraism that was the law and the prophets. The phrase the law and the prophets meant the whole of what we call the Old Testament. The Old Testament, according to the Jews, was referred to as the Tanakh. The T in the N and the K letters in English letters with uh, the vowels added just for pronunciation. But that stands for the law, the prophets, and the writings. 
And so the writings are the poetry books. That's like the, the Psalms and the Proverbs and the Ecclesiastes. The law had to do with God's formation of a covenant with national Israel, his establishment of them as a national people, and the rules that he established as part of that covenant, the Ten Commandments, the 613 rules and regulations that were to regulate their life, everything from their worship to their society to how they interacted with each other. That's the law. Sometimes it's just called Moses. But the law is the first five books of the Bible. And then you have the prophets. And on Wednesday night, we've been looking at some of the minor prophets. Well, some of the major, too. But the prophets all have to do with Israel in response to the fact that Israel broke the law. God imposed his law and his regulations on national Israel. They broke that law, so now what's going to happen to them? God sends them a succession of prophets. And the prophets all speak of God's wrath against Israel for their breaking of the law. God consistently doing what God always said he was going to do, which is, if you keep my law, I'll bless you. If you don't keep it, I'll curse you. And so now the prophets come and say, you're guilty, and therefore God is about to pour out the punishment that he said was going to happen. But as we've also seen on Wednesday nights, the prophets all speak with one voice in saying, not only is God going to punish Israel, but because of the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and because of the covenant that he made with King David, he is also going to restore Israel and gather Israel and establish Israel. Okay, that's the prophets. So that phrase, the law and the prophets, is a nickname for the whole of what we call the Old Testament. Got it? Jesus often refers to it that way, the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets. Now, this is where it gets really interesting because the books of the law are the books of Moses. As I said, sometimes it goes by the nickname Moses. And here is Moses talking to Jesus. The greatest of Israel's prophets, the one that they're looking forward to, the one who is mentioned at the very end of the Old Testament, where God says, and I will send you Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so the anticipation among all the Jews is the return of Elijah. Because when Elijah returns, then there's going to be that time of punishment that God has promised, that Daniel talked about, that Jeremiah talked about, a time of trouble such as never was, ever would be again. Same thing that Jesus picks up in Matthew 24, talks about a time of trouble such as never was, ever would be again. Jeremiah specifically calls it the time of Jacob's trouble and says that Jacob will be delivered through it. Daniel says it's the time of trouble such as never was, but that a remnant will be delivered. Everyone whose name is written in the book, says Daniel. Once that happens, they get their kingdom. Once that happens and God delivers Israel through it, finally they're going to be reestablished with the kind of power and splendor that they had back under King David and under King Solomon when all the kings would come and marvel at what Israel had. So they're looking forward to this, and it starts with Elijah comes back. So they're all looking forward to Elijah coming back. In fact, among the Orthodox Jews to this very day, when they keep Passover, they set aside one chair and one plate for Elijah, just in case this is the year he returns. Looking for Elijah. Okay, so now, Peter, John, and James, get a quick nap, wake up, 
Here's Jesus standing with Moses and Elijah. They're Jews. Their whole life they have listened to Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. Listen to Moses. Perform everything Moses has said. Listen to the prophets. Recognize that the prophets speak for God about a future for Israel. And Elijah in particular is the one that you're looking forward to coming back so that the kingdom will finally be established. Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. And a voice from heaven says to them in that setting, Jesus, Moses, Elijah, this is my beloved son. Moses isn't my beloved son. Elijah's not my beloved son. This one is my beloved son. Now listen to him. And the next thing that happens is Moses and Elijah are gone. And Jesus is standing there. The beloved son, hear him. This is why he could say things like, you've heard it said. And then he would quote Moses. And then he would say, but I say to you. And like I said, sometimes he would extrapolate on the things Moses said. Sometimes he would say the very opposite of what Moses said. But he expected to be heard. And he expected that people would understand the authority he had to be able to say, Moses looked forward to my day. Abraham looked forward to my day. All of the prophets prophesied of me. When he's walking on the Emmaus Road with two of his disciples and they're still trying to figure out What's just happened there in Jerusalem, that the man they'd been following had died and now his body is gone and some women have upset them by saying that he's resurrected and they don't know what to make of all that. So Jesus is in their midst, the resurrected Jesus, walking and talking with them. They don't get it. And we read that starting at Moses and Elijah, he showed them everything concerning himself. Again, another conversation I wanted to hear. What would he have said? What would he have told them? My point is, Moses and Elijah pointed to Christ. And now that he's there, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, the whole of the Old Testament, is established in the fact that Christ is here. And so the voice from heaven can say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, just like I was well pleased with him at the beginning of his ministry when he was baptized. I'm still pleased with him at the end of his ministry when he's on his way to Jerusalem to die. I'm still pleased with him. I've always been pleased with him. And he's my one and only. Listen to him. And this is one of the reasons that we have to pay so much attention to the new covenant teaching. Because we, as Gentiles are brought into the family of God through the adoption that is afforded us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. He gets all the preeminence. Nobody's going to go to heaven and worship Moses. No one's going to get to heaven and worship Elijah. But Christ will get glory day and night forever because he's the preeminent one. Hear him. Now, this is why I so adamantly resist legalism in Christianity. Because legalism is always based in what does the law say? What does Moses say? I heard a preacher many, many years ago say that we bring people to Jesus for their redemption and salvation. 
but we take them to Moses for their sanctification. (laughs) No, 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 no. Your sanctification is all wrapped up in the finished work of Christ. Because sanctification, hagiosmos, the same root, hagios, holy, that sanctification means to be set apart for God's exclusive use. And you can't do that. Work hard. You can't do it. There's no way you can make yourself so good enough that you're separate from the rest of the world in such a way that God is forced to say, well, then you're mine. When Jesus separated his people, how often have I quoted it? Hebrews 10, 14, that by his one sacrifice, he perfected forever those that he sanctified. He set apart his people on purpose, and having done that, he established them as God's elect chosen people and sanctified them, set them apart from the world for God's exclusive use. By the way, the other translation of that same hagios root, holy and sanctified, is the word saints. When you refer to yourself or others as saints, what you're saying is these are the separate people. These are the ones that belong to God. These are the sanctified people. So you don't take people to Moses for their sanctification. You take them to Christ for their absolutely everything. Because he is a complete and a sufficient savior who completely and utterly saves his people satisfies God utterly and completely because God is well-pleased with him. And so Paul could write to the Ephesians and say, so then we are accepted in the beloved because he is the beloved. This is my beloved son. Our acceptance before God is in and through him, not through Moses, not through Elijah. You see the difference? And God demonstrated it by speaking, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased to hear him. And then the other two were gone. Here we'll read it. Start at verse 4 so we can put it all together. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. I like the phrase bright cloud, by the way. Usually we think of clouds as dark. But the thing that enveloped them was bright and glowing. A bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And the disciples heard this, and they fell on their faces, and they were much afraid. That's the right response. I'm amazed it took them that long. Because when you hear the voice of God talk about his love for his son, you won't be standing up thinking this is about you. You will fall down immediately. You will worship. You will glorify God and his son. And Jesus came to them, and he touched them, and he said, Arise, do not be afraid. Now, there's a lot going on there. So let me just see if I can unpack it a little bit. Because the reality is, if you ever have a genuine encounter with the God who made heaven and earth, you will fall down. And you will not get up. Think about Isaiah. When he saw the glory of God, he did not say, oh, good. Hey, it's good I'm here. Instead, what he said is, woe is me. 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He couldn't even speak to that God until an angel flew over to the altar of God with a pair of tongs, took a coal off the altar of God, came over and touched his lips and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and it has taken away your impurity. So Isaiah couldn't even speak to God until something intercessory happened that made his unclean speech acceptable to a righteous and a holy God. And believe me, if you have an encounter with the real God, you'll be the same way. You need someone to make it okay between you and that ineffable, righteous, holy, just judge of the universe. And So what does Jesus do? I love the compassion of it. He doesn't just say, get up. He touches them. He puts his hands on them and says, arise and don't be afraid. Because they know him. They know that he loves them. He has demonstrated his love over and over again. He has fed them. He has protected them. As we're going to see in a minute, he pays their taxes. I mean, he really loves and takes care of them. So what is the solution for your fear of God? The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Having a genuine, reverential Fear of God is the beginning of an understanding of who God is. Once you see the distance between a righteous and a holy God and your sinful depravity, you have no other response than woe is me. Somebody has to make it okay, and you can't do it. And God in his righteousness combined with his grace sent his beloved son to stand in the gap between you and that righteous God and make it okay between the two of you. By satisfying God and then accomplishing righteousness that you can't accomplish and then imputing that righteousness to you the same way that the angel touched Isaiah's lips and said, okay, now you can speak. That's the same thing that Jesus does when he stands in the gap between you and God And gives you his righteousness and says, okay, now you can stand before God. You couldn't before, but now you can. Are you going to have any trouble worshiping him? You can have any trouble saying thank you forever? You can have any trouble worshiping the son of God? Absolutely not. People sometimes ask, why did God make heaven eternal? I mean, why forever? My dad used to worry about the idea of living forever. He used to say to me, I'm the kind of guy that needs a nap once in a while. I don't don't live forever. That seems hard to imagine. I think it's because it'll take that long to give him the honor and the glory that's due to him. And even then, not enough. Arise. Don't be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. The other two are gone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one 
until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. He couldn't be more explicit. I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again from the dead. Don't tell anybody what you've seen here until after that all happens. So Peter, John, and James, Peter saw this. Wouldn't you think out of all the remaining 11 that if anybody would have been standing at the tomb on the third day, Peter would have been there? I mean, John and James, come on. Let's go stand there. Let's wait. He said three days. He's getting up. Let's go. What did Peter do? At the Last Supper, he was busy bragging. Even if everyone denies you, I'll never deny you. I think that was his tone of voice right there, too, by the way. Except he said it in Koine Greek. If everybody turns on you, I'll never deny you. Jesus said, before the rooster crows, which means before the sun even comes up, you're going to deny me three times. Because no human being under their own power is ever going to accomplish anything righteous in God's presence unless it is accomplished in and through Christ. And the Holy Spirit had not yet come which means that men left to themselves without the Holy Spirit, even if they have this level of revelation, still will remain so self-centered, so egocentric, that they will run and try to save their own skin and even deny him, in Peter's case, swearing like the fisherman he was and saying, I don't know him. And we read that the third time he said it, Jesus locked eyes with him. Yeah, because who's in charge here? Who's in control here? Jesus is in control, and he had to do what he had to do all by himself. He couldn't get help or aid from anybody. When he was on the cross and they tried to get him to drink a little bit of the vinegar and the gall, which would have worked as an anesthetic, even then he denied that because he had to do what he was going to do all by himself with no help from anybody. He had to go through it alone so that he gets all the glory forever because he by himself actually fully accomplished the redemption of his people. So he said, tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man has risen from the dead, and yet they didn't get it. They didn't hear it. They didn't understand it. So then the disciples ask a very natural question. Because they've just seen Elijah. Now, on a couple of different occasions, we have talked about what I've called the Elijah connection. And you can find several different messages on this out of the book of Luke. And when we were talking about Elijah out of 1 Kings. And when we were talking about uh, John the Baptist earlier in the book of Matthew. The Elijah connection is an interesting thing. So let me just describe it very quickly, and then if you want to go into more depth, you can go dig that out on our website. John the Baptist, before he was born, his father was told that his son was going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And the way that I have differentiated that in the past is to go to the story of Elijah and Elisha. And Elisha, after Elijah is taken up into the chariot, into the whirlwind, his mantle falls. And when his mantle falls, Elisha picks it up and puts it on and then goes to the River Jordan, strikes the River Jordan, and it parts. And the sons of the prophets say, look, the spirit of Elijah is on Elisha. 
And what I emphasize at that point is to say Elisha is not Elijah, but the spirit of Elijah is on Elisha. See the difference? Okay, so John the Baptist, his father, Zechariah, was told the spirit of Elijah was going to be on John the Baptist. He's not Elijah. You know how I know he's not Elijah? Because they did not look up and say, look, it's Moses and John the Baptist. They said it's Moses and Elijah. And so they ask a very natural question because remember I told you that the Old Testament ends with the promise that God is going to send Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So they say, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And then Jesus says something fascinating. He says, Elijah is coming and will restore all things, future tense. Elijah is coming. That promise at the end of Micah, perfectly good. Still going to happen. Yes? Malachi. Malachi. Am I saying Micah? (sighs) I'm glad that Micah caught that. (laughs) I just want to know before somebody writes it. Yes, somebody will write to me because I can't get away with anything. But good for calling me out on it. Malachi is what I mean. At the end of the book of Malachi, there is the promise, I am going to send you Elijah. So now they've seen Moses and Elijah. And then God says, this is my son, hear him. So naturally then they go, well, then what about the Elijah thing? Why do the scribes say that Elijah comes first? Because you're here. If you're already here, then Elijah should have come first. And he says, Elijah is coming. And he is going to do everything that God said he was going to do. But says verse 12, but I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they wished and so also the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. There he goes again. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to raise from the dead. He keeps telling them this over and over again. They continually don't get it because according to John, the spirit had not come yet. Verse 13, then the disciples understood that he was speaking about John the Baptist. So there's the Elijah connection. The reason that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah was to satisfy that whole forerunner thing that Elijah had going, that Elijah was going to come to pave the way to make people ready for the coming of Messiah. But Elijah is said to be coming before the great and terrible day of the Lord, and that's not yet. And so Jesus could say, he's coming, because the great and terrible day of the Lord is still coming. But then he could say, and he did come. God kept every part of his word. He came in the person of John the Baptist, who came in the spirit of Elijah. You got all that? Mm -hmm. Turn to Mark 9. We're nearly done. We really are. Because now we've gone through the details, so we can read the other account pretty quickly. John 9, I mean Mark 9, starting at verse 1. I mean Micah. (laughs) And he was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, there are some of those who were standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom, the Basaliah of God, 
after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, John, and James and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his garments were radiant and exceeding white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Okay, so now Mark takes the time to say, not a good thing to say. But he was scared, and he felt that he needed to say something, and so he said this. By the way, Mark, the shortest of the Gospels, is oftentimes referred to as Peter's Gospel because historically we know that Mark wrote under Peter's tutelage. And so Mark tells us a great deal about Peter's failures because Peter's pretty open about his failures. And so I like that that little interstitial piece of information is in there that he didn't know what to say. Because he was terrified. And Mark went, yeah, okay, I'll write that down. That's good. Peter had no idea what he was talking about because he was scared. For he did not know what to answer because he was terrified. And then a cloud formed, overshadowing them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man should rise from the dead. And they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. Okay, so now he gives us a little bit of information that you didn't get in Matthew, that they heard the phrase, rise from the dead, but they're going, rise from the dead, does that mean he's going to die? How does he die? He's Messiah. He's the Christ. He's got all the power. Nobody can overthrow him. How is he going to rise from the dead? And they asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Interesting thing Jesus does here. They're discussing how is it that he dies, he takes them to the scripture and says, think about what's written. How is it written that the Son of Man is going to suffer many things and be treated with contempt? That's already in your scripture. The prophets have already told you this is going to happen. So why are you surprised about this? Why are you discussing this whole raising from the dead thing or discussing how could he die? It's already written in the scripture that this is going to happen. I am always impressed and amazed every time I see Jesus take people to the scripture. That's really interesting. I mentioned, by the way, a few minutes ago, the Emmaus Road, when Jesus was talking to two of his disciples, he is the risen Lord, but they don't know it's him. He doesn't reveal himself till they ask him to come in and sit down and eat and then he breaks bread and when he breaks bread their eyes are opened they realize it's him and he disappears from their midst so how did he reveal himself he told them everything that was written in the scripture about himself 
And it's really interesting that he didn't go, guys, it's me. I, hey, look, it's me. It's Jesus. And I died and I buried and I resurrected. He didn't do that. He took them to the scripture and showed them from the scripture that he had to die and be buried and raised again so that they would believe the scripture. He could have convinced them by just saying, it's me and I'm risen. But he didn't. First, he made sure they saw the scripture. Jesus himself always points people back to, but what does the word of God say? Which is why I keep pounding it here. But what does the word of God say? So anyway, Elijah does come first. He restores all things. And yet, how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? He wanted them to understand that first. But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it was written of him. Right back to the scripture, just as it was written. The same things that were written are the very same things that happened. Luke 9, starting at verse 28. And about eight days after these things, it came about that he took along Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him and they were Moses and Elijah. And here's the bit of information that Luke gives us that the other two didn't, who appearing in glory... So Moses and Elijah have appeared, though dead, appeared in their glorified state, and they were speaking of his departure. Interesting. They were speaking of the fact that he's going to die. And look at the next language, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. He's never spoken of in the Bible as a victim of anything other than God's judgment and declaration. Far too often when people speak of the death of Jesus, they speak of it as if he was just some hapless martyr. You know, he was a good teacher. He was a wise fellow. He said some good things, but, you know, the Jews and the Romans just weren't going to have it. And so they went and they got him and they killed him. But Jesus kept saying things like, no man takes my life from me. I have the power to lay my life down. An interesting phrase. And I have the power to take it up again. And I have this command from my father. He came to earth for the specific purpose of the death, burial, and resurrection. And so Moses and Elijah come to speak to him concerning his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Because throughout his ministry, he kept saying things like, it's not my time yet. Not my time. People try to lay hands on him. He'd say, not my time. At one point... A gang of men, a group of men, grabbed him, dragged him to the side of a cliff in an effort to throw him off. And we read, and he turned around and walked through the midst of them. Because nobody has any power over him. Nobody has any authority over him. For him to die, think about this. Think theologically and conceptually for a minute. I really am going to let you go. I really am. But think about it for a moment. If he is who he said he is, if he is the Son of God, and if he is perfect then on what basis does he die? Because the wages of sin is death. And he has no sin. So then how does he die? How can he die? On what basis does he die? 
which is why he who knew no sin became sin for us. And when our sin was imputed to him, he then died under the weight of that sin. But he himself by himself, there's no basis for him to die. Which is why the language of his death is his accomplishment. He accomplishes his own death because he has the power to accomplish it. And that's what he's discussing with Moses and Elijah. Again, this is a conversation I want more information about. How do you suppose they knew who Elijah and Moses were when they were speaking of Jesus? Good question. I have no idea. All I can assume is that in the course of the discussion or in the course of the interaction that it became apparent to them. But I have no idea how they knew that it was Moses and Elijah. Divine revelation? Or perhaps Jesus speaking to them in such a way that they figured it out? Don't know. And do you think that they will be the two witnesses? I knew somebody was going to want to go down that... Go chase that rabbit trail. I tend to think so because of the particular miracles that are listed that they do. The two witnesses are in the book of Revelation. After the church is taken off the planet, after the 144,000 are gone, it's down to two. And the final two witnesses testify of God and Christ and then do miracles. And then astoundingly, when they are killed, everybody throws a party and brings each other presents. That's what it says. People give people gifts. Because, yeah, it's like Christmas. Oh, we finally killed those two. They lay in the streets, seen by the whole world, which now can happen, given satellite television. Then they raise up and a voice says, come up hither, and they rise up off the planet, and then things get ugly, because the two witnesses are gone. So, I kind of think so, yeah, because of this connection with the transfiguration, but also because of the particular things they do. It's the miracles that they did back in the Old Testament. But if it turns out it's not, I'm okay with that. But I think there's enough evidence to kind of lean that way. Make sense? Yes, ma'am. Who do you think about the connection with the Book of Enoch and the watchers coming down on that mountain? And this kind of being Jesus saying, I'm really taking supremacy over this particular territory? Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't... Yeah, it is very speculative. And, and I don't do apocryphal teaching. You know, what's in these 66 books is enough to work with. I've read all the Enochian literature, and I find it fascinating. But I also find places in it that makes me go, ooh, yeah, not, mm-mm, no. I can see why it's not considered inspired. So rather than chase that rabbit trail, anyone else got any rabbit trails they want to chase? Or we? I know why Peter was so upset. He couldn't figure out if he was on heaven or earth. What, oh yes. What setting is oh yes. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. So hang on, because now look, look at verse thirty-two. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory. And the two men standing with him. So yes, not only does he wake up from sleep, but he wakes up and he sees this and he's scared. So he doesn't know what to say. 
I'm sure if you've just woken up and there's a mist around you and there's Jesus who you do know, but he's in this glorified state. And then there's Moses and Elijah and they're talking. They're yes. Yes. You would think I probably died in my sleep. I'm sure it was a remarkably confusing moment. It came about as these were parting from him at the end of the conversation, apparently. Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, the one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And look at the next phrase, not realizing what he was saying. So all three of them tell us this was not a smart thing. Because he was equating the three of them. And while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and they reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. And it came about on the next day when they came down from the mountain, a great multitude met him and behold, a man from the multitude shouted out saying, teacher, I beg you to look at my son for he's my only boy and behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams and it throws him into convulsions with foaming at the mouth and it mauls him and it scarcely ever leaves him and I begged your disciples to cast it out and they could not. Immediately after this glorified moment, yet again, another uprising from Satan. That's where we'll pick up next week. All right? I, I was going to say, are there any questions? But I think we kind of got to the questions. Is there anything else? Yes, sir. I think it's a remarkable display of pride on Peter's part to wake up, see Moses, Elijah, and Jesus there, and go, I'll take it from here. <laughs> I got this, boys. It is. It is remarkable. But that's consistently Peter, isn't it? Yes. It's not over yet. They're still going to have another discussion in the book of Matthew about which one of them is going to be the greatest. They're still so in their flesh. They're still so in their ego. It takes the Holy Spirit of God to change a person. If ever there was a time to shut up and observe, that would have been it. That would have been it, yeah. Be quiet and pay attention. Yes, sir. When, the, when Christ undergoes this transfiguration, he is revealing himself in the state in which he will be in the kingdom. That- yeah, I, I think that it's his glorified reality because it's so similar to what you read at the beginning of the book of Revelation. When John sees him, he has so many of these same characteristics that I think it's, I think it's who he really is. Uh, theologians use this term, the hypostatic union, yeah. hypo under, hypodermic, under skin. Hypostatic means that when he became man, he took on a form that was below himself. I think what he was demonstrating, both on Patmos and here on this mountain, is this is who I really am. This is what I'm really like. But for your sake, and so that I could walk around on the planet... I took on this lower form, this human creaturely form. I think that's what's going on. How it ties back to verse 28. Right. right. I think it is his glorious presence. 
And whether or not that is exactly what he looks like in the kingdom, because we're just not told, what it does establish is that he is the king, that this is his reign, this is his rulership, because he is, after all, God incarnate. It is very consistent with the language in Revelation. Very. Which is all about the wrapping up of all things and the establishment of the kingdom, and ultimately the new Jerusalem. So... I think that connection is a pretty consistent connection. Anything else? Yes. Or were you just doing this? No, what, was, what were you doing? I, was, I don't know. <laughs> what were you doing? Sadly, Tyler is having conniptions and needs prayer because he's doing this. All right. Say goodbye to the digital congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.